Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. Each of the past Wednesdays, we've included Lawrence Beasley's incredible eyewitness account of the Titanic disaster. This last installment is Chapter 5, The Rescue. If you wish to complete the book, search Gutenberg.org for it, and you can read it online. And now, Chapter 5, The Rescue from the Loss of the Titanic by Lawrence Beasley. Chapter 5. The Rescue All accounts agree that the Titanic sunk about 2.20 a.m. A watch in our boat gave the time as 2.30 a.m. shortly afterwards. We were then in touch with three other boats. One was 15 on our starboard quarter, and the others I've always supposed were 9 and 11, but I do not know definitely. We never got into close touch with each other, but called occasionally across the darkness and saw them looming near and then drawing away again. We called to ask if any officer were aboard the other three, but did not find one. So in the absence of any plan of action, we rode slowly forward, or what we thought was forward, for it was in the direction the Titanic's bows were pointing before she sank. I see now that we must have been pointing northwest, for we presently saw the northern lights on the starboard, and again, when the Carpathia came up from the south, we saw her from behind us on the southeast, and turned our boat around to get her. I imagine the boats must have spread themselves over the ocean fanwise as they escaped from the Titanic, those on the starboard and port sides forward being almost dead ahead of her, and the stern boats being broadside from her. This explains why the port boats were so much longer in reaching the Carpathia, as late as 8.30 a.m., while some of the starboard boats came up as early as 4.10 a.m. Some of the port boats had to row across the place where the Titanic sank to get to the Carpathia, through the debris of chairs and wreckage of all kinds. None of the other three boats near us had a light, and we missed lights badly. We could not see each other in the darkness. We could not signal to ships which might be rushing up full speed from any quarter to the Titanic's rescue and now we had been through so much, it would seem hard to have to encounter the additional danger of being in the line of a rescuing ship. We felt again for the lantern beneath our feet, along the sides, and I managed this time to get down to the locker below the tiller platform and open it in front by removing a board, to find nothing but the zinc air tank which renders the boat unsinkable when upset. I do not think there was a light in the boat. We felt also for food and water, and found none and came to the conclusion that none had been put in. But here we were mistaken. I have a letter from 2nd Officer Lightoller in which he assures me that he and 4th Officer Pittman examined every lifeboat from the Titanic as they lay on the Carpathia's deck afterwards, and found biscuits and water in each. Not that we wanted any food or water then, we thought of the time that might elapse before the Olympic picked us up in the afternoon. Towards 3 a.m. we saw a faint glow in the sky ahead on the starboard quarter, the first gleams, we thought, of the coming dawn. We were not certain of the time, and were eager perhaps to accept too readily any relief from the darkness, only too glad to be able to look at each other in the face and see who were our companions in good fortune. To be free from the hazard of lying in a steamer's track, invisible in the darkness. But we were doomed to disappointment. The soft light increased for a time, and died away a little, glowed again, and then remained stationary for some minutes. Northern lights, it suddenly came to me, and so it was. 
Presently the light arched fanways across the northern sky, with faint streamers reaching toward the pole star. I had seen them of about the same intensity in England some years ago, and knew them again. A sigh of disappointment went through the boat as we realized that the day was not yet. But had we known it, something more comforting than even the day was in store for us. All night long we had watched the horizon with eager eyes for signs of a steamer's lights. We heard from the Captain Stoker that the first appearance would be a single light on the horizon, the masthead light, followed shortly by a second one, lower down, on the deck. If these two remained in vertical alignment and the distance between them increased as the lights drew nearer, we might be certain it was a steamer. But what a night to see that first light on the horizon! We saw it many times as the earth revolved, and some stars rose on the clear horizon, and others sank down to it. There were lights on every quarter. Some we watched and followed until we saw the deception and grew wiser. Some were lights from those of our boats that were fortunate enough to have lanterns, but these were generally easily detected, as they rose and fell in the near distance. Once they raised our hopes, only to sink them to zero again. Near what seemed to be the horizon on the port quarter, we saw two lights close together, and thought this must be our double light. But as we gazed across the miles that separated us, the lights slowly drew apart, and we realized that they were two boats' lanterns at different distances from us, in line, one behind the other. They were probably the forward port boats that had to return so many miles next morning across the Titanic's graveyard. But notwithstanding these hopes and disappointments, the absence of lights, food and water, as we thought, and the bitter cold, it would not be correct to say that we were unhappy in those early morning hours. The cold that settled down on us like a garment that wraps close around was the only real discomfort. And that we could keep at bay by not thinking too much about it, as well as by vigorous friction and gentle stamping on the floor. It made too much noise for all of us to stamp hard, I never heard that anyone in boat B had any after-effects from the cold. Even the stoker, who was so thinly clad, came through without harm. After all, there were many things to be thankful for, so many that they made insignificant the temporary inconvenience of the cold, the crowded boat, the darkness, and the hundred and one things that in the ordinary way we might regard as unpleasant. The quiet sea, the beautiful night, how different from two nights later when flashes of lightning and peals of thunder broke the sleep of many on board the Carpathia. And above all, the fact of being in a boat at all, when so many of our fellow passengers and crew, whose cries no longer moaned across the water to us, were silent in the water. Gratitude was the dominant note in our feelings then. But grateful as nearly as I can judge, someone in the bow called our attention to a faint faraway gleam in the southeast. And there it was, Certainly, streaming up from behind the horizon like a distant flash of a warship's searchlight. Then a faint boom like guns afar off, and the light died away again. The stoker who had lain all night under the tiller sat up suddenly as if from a dream, the overcoat hanging from his shoulders. I can see him now, staring out across the sea, to where the sound had come from, and hear him shout, That was a cannon! But it was not. It was the Carpathia's rocket, though we did not know it until later. But we did know now that something was not far away, racing up to our help and signaling to us a preliminary message to cheer our hearts until she arrived. 
with every sense alert, eyes gazing intently at the horizon, and ears open for the least sound, we waited in absolute silence in the quiet night. And then, creeping over the edge of the sea where the flash had been, we saw a single light, and presently a second below it, and in a few minutes they were well above the horizon, and they remained in line. But we had been deceived before, and we waited a little longer before we allowed ourselves to say we were safe. The lights came up rapidly, so rapidly it seemed only a few minutes, although it must have been longer, between first seeing them and finding them well above the horizon and bearing down rapidly on us. We did not know what sort of a vessel was coming, but we knew she was coming quickly, and we searched for paper, rags, anything that would burn. We were quite prepared to burn our coats if necessary. A hasty paper torch was twisted out of letters found in someone's pocket, lighted, and held aloft by the stoker standing on the tiller platform. The little light shone in flickers on the faces of the occupants of the boat, ran in broken lines for a few yards along the black, oily sea, where for the first time I saw the presence of that awful thing which had caused the whole terrible disaster. Ice. In little chunks the size of one's fist, bobbing harmlessly up and down, and spluttered away to blackness again as the stoker threw the burning remnants of paper overboard. But we had known it. The danger of being run down was already over. One reason being that the Carpathia had already seen the lifeboat which all night long had shown a green light. The first indication the Carpathia had of our position. But the real reason is to be found in the Carpathia's log. Went full speed ahead during the night. Stopped at 4 a.m. with an iceberg dead ahead. It was as good a reason as any. With our torch burnt and in darkness again, we saw the headlights stop and realized that the rescuer had hove too. A sigh of relief went up when we thought no hurried scramble had to be made to get out of her way, with a chance of just being missed by her and having to meet the wash of her screws as she tore by us. We waited, and she slowly swung around and revealed herself to us as a large steamer with all her portholes alight. I think the way those lights came slowly into view was one of the most wonderful things we shall ever see. It meant deliverance at once. That was the amazing thing to us all. We had thought of the afternoon as our time of rescue, and here only a few hours after the Titanic sank, before it was yet light, we were to be taken aboard. It seemed almost too good to be true, and I think everyone's eyes filled with tears, men's as well as women's, as they saw again the rows of lights one above the other shining kindly to them across the water, and thank God was murmured in heartfelt tones round the boat. The boat swung round, and the crew began their long row to the steamer. The captain called for a song, and led off with, Pull for the shore, boys. The crew took it up quaveringly, and the passengers joined in, but I think one verse was all they sang. It was too early yet. Gratitude was too deep and sudden in its overwhelming intensity for us to sing very steadily. Presently, finding the song had not gone very well, we tried a cheer, and that went better. It was more easy to relieve our feelings with a noise, and time and tune were not necessary ingredients in a cheer. In the midst of our thankfulness for deliverance, one name was mentioned with the deepest feeling of gratitude, that of Marconi. I wish that he had been there to hear the chorus of gratitude that went out to him for the wonderful invention that spared us many hours, and perhaps many days, of wandering about the sea in hunger and storm and cold. 
Perhaps our gratitude was sufficiently intense and vivid to Marconi, some of it to him that night. All round we saw boats making for the Carpathia and heard their shouts and cheers. Our crew rowed hard in friendly rivalry with other boats to be among the first home, but we must have been eighth or ninth at the side of the ship. We had a heavy load aboard and had to row round a huge iceberg on the way. And then, as if to make everything complete for our happiness, came the dawn. First a beautiful, quiet shimmer away in the east, then a soft golden glow that crept up stealthily from behind in the skyline as if it were trying not to be noticed as it stole over the sea and spread itself quietly in every direction. So quietly, as if to make us believe it had been there all the time and we had not observed it. Then the sky turned faintly pink, and in the distance the thinnest, fleeciest clouds stretched in thin bands across the horizon and close down to it, becoming every moment more and more pink. And next the stars died, slowly, save one which remained long after the others, just above the horizon. And nearby, with the crescent turned to the north, and the lower horn just touching the horizon, the thinnest, palest of moons. And with the dawn came a faint breeze from the west, the first breath of wind we'd felt since the Titanic stopped her engines. Anticipating a few hours, as the day drew on to 8 a.m., the time the last boats came up, this breeze increased to a fresh wind which whipped up the sea, so that the last boat laden with people had an anxious time in the choppy waves before they reached the Carpathia. An officer remarked that one of the boats could not have stayed afloat another hour. The wind had held off just long enough. The captain shouted along our boat to the crew as they strained at the oars, two pulling and an extra one facing them and pushing to try and keep pace with the other boats. A new moon! Turn your money over, boys! That is, if you have any! We laughed at him for the quaint superstition at such a time, and it was good to laugh again but he showed his disbelief in another superstition when he added, Well, I shall never say again that 13 is an unlucky number. Boat 13 is the best friend we've ever had. If there had been among us, and it is almost certain that there were, so fast does superstition cling. Those who feared events connected with the number 13, I am certain they agreed with him, and never again will they attach any importance to such a foolish belief. Perhaps the belief itself will receive a shock when it is remembered that boat 13 of the Titanic brought away a full load from the sinking vessel, carried them in such comfort all night that they'd not even a drop of water on them, and landed them safely at the Carpathia's side, where they climbed aboard without a single mishap. It almost tempts one to be the 13th at table, or to choose a house numbered 13, fearless of any croaking about flying in the face of what is humorously called Providence. Looking towards the Carpathia in the faint light, we saw what seemed to be two large, fully-rigged sailing ships near the horizon, with all sails set, standing up near her, and we decided that they must be fishing vessels off the banks of Newfoundland, which had seen the Carpathia stop, and were waiting to see if she wanted help of any kind. But in a few minutes more, the light shone on them, and they stood revealed as huge icebergs, peaked in a way that readily suggested a ship. When the sun rose higher, it turned them pink and sinister as they looked towering like rugged white peats of rock out of the sea, and terrible as was the disaster one of them had caused. There was an awful beauty about them which could not be overlooked. 
Later, when the sun came above the horizon, they sparkled and glittered in its rays, deadly white, like frozen snow rather than translucent ice. As the dawn crept towards us, there lay another almost directly in the line between our boat and the Carpathia, and a few minutes later, another on her port quarter, and more again on the southern and western horizons, as far as the eye could reach. All orders were shouted to them where to make for. Some were told to stand by and wait for further instructions, others to row for the light of the disappearing steamer. It is a pitiful thing to recall the effects of sending down the first boats half full. In some cases, men in the company of their wives had actually taken seats in the boats, young men, married only a few weeks and on their wedding trip, and had done so only because no more women could then be found. But the strict interpretation by the particular officer in charge there of the rule of women and children only compelled them to get out again. Some of these boats were lowered and reached the Carpathia with many vacant seats. The anguish of the young wives in such circumstances can only be imagined. In other parts of the ship, however, a different interpretation was placed on the rule, and men were allowed and even invited by officers to get in, not only to form part of the crew, but even as passengers. This, of course, in the first boats and when no more women could be found. The varied understanding of this rule was a frequent subject of discussion on the Carpathia. In fact, the rule itself was debated with much heart-searching. There were not wanting many who doubted the justice of its rigid enforcement, who could not think it well that a husband should be separated from his wife and family, leaving them penniless, or a young bridegroom with his wife of a few short weeks, while ladies with few relatives, with no one dependent upon them, and few responsibilities of any kind, were saved. It was mostly these ladies who pressed this view and even men seem to think there was a good deal to be said for it. Perhaps there is, theoretically, but it would be impossible, I think, to practice. To quote Mr. Lightoller again in his evidence before the United States Senate Committee, when asked if it was a rule of the sea that women and children be saved first, he replied, No, it is a rule of human nature. That is no doubt the real reason for its existence. But the selective process of circumstances brought about results that were very bitter to some. It was heart-rending for ladies who had lost all they held dearest in the world to hear that in one boat was a stoker picked up out of the sea so drunk that he stood up and brandished his arms about and had to be thrown down by ladies and sat upon to keep him quiet. If comparisons can be drawn, it did seem better that an educated, refined man should be saved than one who had flown to drink as his refuge in time of danger. These discussions turn sometimes to the old inquiry, what is the purpose of all this? Why the disaster? Why this man saved and that man lost? Who has arranged that my husband should live a few short happy years in the world and the happiest days in those years with me these last few weeks and then be taken from me? I heard no one attribute all this to a divine power who ordains and arranges the lives of men. And as part of a definite scheme, send such calamity and misery in order to purify, to teach, to spiritualize. I do not say there were not people who thought and said they saw divine wisdom in it all, so inscrutable that we in our ignorance saw it not. But I did not hear it expressed, and this book is intended to be no more than a partial chronicle of the many different experiences 
and convictions. There were those, on the other hand, who did not fail to say emphatically that indifference to the rights and feelings of others, blindness to duty towards our fellow men and women, was the last analysis the cause of most of the human misery in the world. And it should undoubtedly appeal more to our sense of justice to attribute these things to our own lack of consideration for others than to shift the responsibility onto a power whom we first postulate as being all-wise and all-loving. All the boats were lowered and set away by about 2 a.m., and by this time the ship was very low in the water, the forecastle deck completely submerged, and the sea creeping steadily up to the bridge, and probably only a few yards away. No one on the ship can have any doubt now as to her ultimate fate, and yet the 1,500 passengers and crew on board made no demonstration, and not a sound came from them as they stood quietly on the decks or went about their duties below. It seems incredible and yet if it was a continuation of the same feeling that existed on deck before the boats left, and I have no doubt it was, the explanation is straightforward and reasonable in its simplicity. An attempt is made in the last chapter to show why the attitude of the crowd was so quietly courageous. There are accounts which picture excited crowds running about the deck in terror, fighting and struggling, but two of the most accurate observers, Colonel Gracie and Mr. Lightoller, affirmed that this was not so, that absolute order and quietness prevailed. The band still played to cheer the hearts of all near. The engineers and their crew, I've never heard anyone speak of a single engineer being seen on deck, still worked at the electric light engines, far away below, keeping them going until no human being could do so a second longer, right until the ship tilted on end and the engines broke loose and fell. The light failed then only because the engines were no longer there to produce light, not because the men who worked them were not standing by them to do their duty. To be down in the bowels of the ship, far away from the deck, where at any rate there was a chance of a dive and a swim and a possible rescue. To know that when the ship went, as they knew it must soon, there could be no possible hope of climbing up in time to reach the sea. To know all these things, and yet to keep the engines going that the decks might be lighted to the last moment required sublime courage. But this courage is required of every engineer, and it is not called by that name. It's called duty. To stand by his engines to the last possible moment is his duty. There could be no better example of the supremest courage being but duty well done than to remember the engineers of the Titanic still at work as she heeled over and flung them with their engines down the length of the ship. The simple statement that the lights kept on to the last is really their epitaph, but Lowell's words would seem to apply to them with peculiar force. The longer on this earth we live and weigh the various qualities of men, the more we feel the high, stern-featured beauty of plain devotedness to duty. Steadfast and still, nor paid with mortal praise, but finding amplest recompense for life's ungarlanded expense, in work done squarely and unwasted days. For some time before she sank, the Titanic had a considerable list to port, so much so that one boat, at any rate, swung so far away from the side that difficulty was experienced in getting passengers in. 
This list was increased toward the end, and Colonel Gracie relates that Mr. Lightoller, who has a deep, powerful voice, ordered all passengers to the starboard side. This was close before the end. They crossed over, and as they did so a crowd of steerage passengers rushed up and filled the deck so full that there was barely room to move. Soon afterwards the great vessel swung slowly, stern in the air, the lights went out, and while some were flung into the water and others dived off, the great majority still clung to the rails, to the sides and roofs of the deck structures, lying prone on the deck. And in this position they were when, a few minutes later, the enormous vessel dived obliquely downwards. As she went, no doubt many still clung to the rails, but most would do their best to get away from her and jump as she slid forwards and downwards. Whatever they did, there can be little question that most of them would be taken down by suction to come up again a few moments later and to fill the air with those heart-rending cries which fell on the ears of those in the lifeboats with such amazement. Another survivor, on the other hand, relates that he had dived from the stern before she heeled over and swam round under her enormous triple screws, lifted by now high out of the water as she stood on end. Fascinated by the extraordinary sight, he watched them up above his head, but presently realizing the necessity of getting away as quickly as possible, he started to swim from the ship, but as he did, she dived forward, the screws passing near his head. His experience is that not only was no suction present, but even a wave was created which washed him away from the place where she had gone down. All of those 1,500 people flung into the sea as the Titanic went down, innocent victims of thoughtlessness and apathy of those responsible for their safety. Of them, only a very few found their way to the Carpathia. It will serve no good purpose to dwell any longer on the scene of helpless men and women struggling in the water. The heart of everyone who has read of their helplessness has gone out to them in deepest love and sympathy, and the knowledge that their struggle in the water was in most cases short and not physically painful because of the low temperature. The evidence seems to show that few lost their lives by drowning is some consolation. If everyone sees to it that his sympathy with them is so practical as to force him to follow up the question of reforms personally, not leaving it to experts alone, then he will have at any rate done something to atone for the loss of so many valuable lives. We had now better follow the adventures of those who were rescued from the final event in the disaster. Two accounts, those of Colonel Gracie and Mr. Lightoller, agree very closely. The former went down clinging to a rail. The latter, Mr. Lightoller, dived before the ship went right under, but was sucked down and held against one of the blowers. They were both carried down for what seemed a long distance, but Mr. Lightoller was finally blown up again by a terrific gust that came up the blower and forced him clear. Colonel Gracie came to the service after holding his breath for what seemed like an eternity, and they both swam about, holding on to any wreckage they could find. Finally, they saw an upturned collapsible boat and climbed on it in company with twenty other men, among them Bride, the Marconi operator. After remaining thus for some hours, with the sea washing them to the waist, they stood up as day broke, in two rows, back to back, balancing themselves as well as they could, and afraid to turn lest the boat should roll over. Finally, a lifeboat saw them and took them off, an operation attended with the greatest difficulty, 
and they reached the Carpathia in the early dawn. Not many people have gone through such an experience as those men did, lying all night on an overturned, ill-balanced boat and praying together, as they did all the time, for the day, and a ship to take them off. Some account must now be attempted at the journey of the fleet of boats to the Carpathia, but it must necessarily be very brief. Experiences differed considerably. Some had no encounters at all with icebergs, no lack of men to row, discovered lights and food and water, were picked up after only a few hours' exposure, and suffered very little discomfort. Others seemed to see icebergs round them all night long, and to be always rowing around them. Others had so few men aboard, in some cases only two or three, that ladies had to row, and in one case to steer, found no lights, food or water, and were adrift many hours, in some cases nearly eight hours. The first boat to be picked up by the Carpathia was one in charge of Mr. Boxhall. There was only one other man rowing, and ladies worked at the oars. A green light burning in this boat all night was the greatest comfort to the rest of us who had nothing to steer by. Although it meant little in the way of safety in itself, it was a point to which we could look. The green light was the first intimation Captain Rostron had of our position, and he steered for it, and picked up its passengers first. Mr. Pittman was sent by First Officer Murdoch in charge of Boat 5, with 40 passengers and 5 of the crew. It would have held more, but no women could be found at the time it was lowered. Mr. Pittman says that after leaving the ship, he felt confident she would float and they would all return. A passenger in this boat relates that men could not be induced to embark when she went down, and made appointments for the next morning with him. Tied to Boat 5 was Boat 7, one of those that contained few people. A few were transferred from Number 5, but it would have held many more. Fifth Officer Lowe was in charge of Boat 14, with 55 women and children, and some of the crew. So full was the boat, that as she went down, Mr. Lowe had to fire his revolver along the ship's side to prevent any more climbing in and causing her to buckle. This boat, like our 13, was difficult to release from the lowering tackle, and had to be cut away after reaching the sea. Mr. Lowe took in charge four other boats, tied them together with lines, found some of them not full, and transferred all his passengers to these, distributing them in the darkness as well as he could. Then, returning to the place where the Titanic had sunk, he picked up some of those swimming in the water and went back to the four boats. On the way to the Carpathia, he encountered one of the collapsible boats and took aboard all those in her, as she seemed to be sinking. Boat 12 was one of those four that were tied together, and the seaman in charge testified that he tried to row to the drowning, but with forty women and children and only one other man to row, it was not possible to pull such a heavy boat to the scene of the wreck. Boat 2 was a small ship's boat and had four or five passengers and seven of the crew. Boat 4 was one of the last to leave on the port side, and by this time there was such a list that deck chairs had to bridge the gap between the boat and the deck. When lowered, it remained for some time, still attached to the ropes, and as the Titanic was rapidly sinking, it seemed she would be pulled under. That was boat two. That boat was full of women who besought the sailors to leave the ship, but in obedience to orders from the captain to stand by the cargo port, they remained near, so near, in fact, that they heard China falling and smashing 
as the ship went down by the head, and were nearly hit by wreckage thrown overboard by some of the officers and crew, and intended to serve as rafts. They got clear finally, and were only a short distance away when the ship sank, so that they were able to pull some men aboard as they came to the surface. This boat, boat two, had an unpleasant experience in the night with icebergs. Many were seen and avoided with difficulty. Quartermaster Hickens was in charge of boat six, and in the absence of sailors, Major Poochin was sent to help Manor. They were told to make for the light of the steamer seen on the port side, and followed it until it disappeared. There were forty women and children on boat six. Boat eight had only one seaman, and as Captain Smith had enforced the rule of women and children only, ladies had to row. Later in the night, when little progress had been made, the seamen took an oar and put a lady in charge of the tiller. This boat again was in the midst of icebergs. Of the four collapsible boats, although collapsible is not really the correct term, for only a small portion collapses, the canvas edge. Surf boats is really their name. One was launched at the last moment by being pushed over as the sea rose to the edge of the deck, and was never righted. This is the one twenty men climbed on. Another was caught up by Mr. Lowe, and the passengers transferred, with the exception of three men who had perished from the effects of immersion. The boat was allowed to drift away, and was found more than a month later by the ship Celtic in just the same condition. It is interesting to note how long this boat had remained afloat after she was supposed to be no longer seaworthy. A curious coincidence arose from the fact that one of my brothers happened to be traveling on the Celtic, and looking over the side, saw adrift on the sea a boat belonging to the Titanic, in which I had been wrecked. The two other collapsible boats came to the Carpathia carrying full loads of passengers. In one, the forward starboard boat, and one of the last to leave, was Mr. Ismay. Here four Chinamen were concealed under the feet of the passengers. How they got there, no one knew, or indeed how they happened to be on the Titanic, for by the immigration laws of the United States, they are not allowed to enter her ports. It must be said, in conclusion, that there is a greatest cause for gratitude that all the boats launched carried their passengers safely to the rescue ship. It would not be right to accept this fact without calling attention to it. It would be easy to enumerate many things which might have been present as elements of danger. Thank you so much for joining us for this story. We appreciate your joining us. If you enjoyed it, please do send us a review. If you wish to continue, search projectgutenberg.org. The Loss of the Titanic by Lawrence Beasley, and you'll be able to catch up on it by reading on the Internet. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story. <laughs>